Welcome to Res Talk, your source for the latest insights, trends, news, and resources from leaders in the building performance and rating world. Here's your host, a committed building science enthusiast and registered professional engineer, and the podfather of energy efficiency, Bill Spode. Welcome back to another episode of the Res Talk Podcast. It's our goal at the Res Talk Podcast to communicate late breaking news and thoughtful insights about the broad array of topics in the rapidly expanding world of residential energy ratings to the broad array of stakeholders in the ResNet ecosystem. So whether you're a housing consumer, rater, builder, realtor, or appraiser, you want to hear about the evolving trends in home energy ratings. To the ResNet community, we hear you and wish to engage. A critical element in the decarbonization of homes is the embodied carbon produced in the construction of homes. As the current ResNet carbon index only covers the carbon produced due to the energy used in a home, what can we do next? What type of standards exists to perform this assessment? What are the challenges and roadmap ahead? Recently, the ResNet Board of Directors formally authorized the creation of an effort to explore the development of a residential embodied carbon standard. The first step in this process is the creation of an advisory committee that will review the development of the standard, provide suggestions on how to proceed, and vet drafts of the guidelines. Our guest today in the podcast is Chris Magwood chair of the ResNet Embodied Carbon Advisory Committee. Chris's full-time role is the manager of carbon-free buildings at RMI. I found this topic fascinating as we explored the data and the impact on people, businesses, and the environment. And my big takeaway was the stacked benefits are wins all the way around, and pursuing these efforts is not likely to be cost-prohibitive. In fact, perhaps cost-beneficial. So let's jump on here with Chris Magwood of RMI, to talk about the new ResNet Embodied Carbon Advisory Committee. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Chris, can you give us some background first on RMI and then yourself? Sure, yeah. RMI is formerly known as the Rocky Mountain Institute. So it's a not-for-profit that is fully centered around decarbonization and transition to a clean energy environment. And within that larger project, there's a small team of us who work specifically on the embodied carbon of buildings and building materials. And so that's the little niche there that I live in, but it's part of a whole context of helping buildings decarbonize from energy efficiency, electrification, the whole gamut of solutions of which thinking about the emissions that happen when the materials that make buildings get made is the part that I'm looking into. Very good. And About how long has RMI been in existence? It's been in existence since the 1980s. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And I ended up there. I come from a 25-year career in a residential design build firm. And in that practice, we were, for the whole 25 years, very driven by metrics, trying to figure out if we're telling somebody that we're making a quote-unquote green building. We didn't want it to just be greenwashing. We wanted to really know how could we measure that we were doing better. So we were very early into energy modeling and taking that side of things really seriously, monitoring the health and toxicity of the materials we were putting in. And about 10 years ago, I thought, oh, I should really be able to tell clients what the carbon footprint of our materials would be since that seems really relevant. And I thought that would be a quick off the side of my desk bit of research and I'd get an answer and I'd be able to tell people. And instead, it's been a decade of 
devoting myself to that question and getting pretty deep into the research and basically even to the point of leaving the design build side of things and into not just now the research, but the promotion of how do we actually take this knowledge and bring it to the home building sector. A high level overview, how do you go about doing the research into building materials? A decade ago, it was difficult because there wasn't a whole lot of data out there. There were different studies, different academics might have looked at the emissions that arose from a specific material, and then another academic would look at another material, but they do it in different ways. But around that time, there was an ISO standard developed for how to measure the environmental impacts of making materials. And that includes all materials. You could do the same thing for a shoe or a window for a building. So as that standard got picked up, more and more companies started making what are called environmental product declarations, which is now like the same way you started measuring fuel mileage in cars 40 or 50 years ago. It's a set of rules by which you decide what you measure and how you measure it and under what conditions. So when I sent myself back to school in 2016 to really do a a deep dive into this, and I was able to put together enough of these environmental product declarations to say, oh, I could reasonably represent a residential building now. So I started looking at modeling a couple of sample buildings, same building size, shape, level of performance, all of that kind of stuff. And I realized, oh, if I am picking materials from the high end of the emissions spectrum, a home could have as much as half a ton of emissions per square meter of floor area, which is shocking. (laughs) It's a lot of emissions. Or at the best end of the spectrum, it could be close to zero emissions. And so I had this huge, wide range of results, and it was entirely dependent on what materials you picked. So I think there was a lot of concern early on when people started raising the notion of the embodied carbon of the materials that what we would find is, oh, that's in direct competition with energy efficiency because the embodied carbon people are going to tell you to use less materials, but on the energy efficiency side, we want to add more insulation. We might want to add a pane of glass to the window, et cetera. So really early on, what I was seeing in my research was, no, you can achieve the same level of performance, but have this really wide range of emissions results from the materials. And so my mission is to help people understand that and then start knowing which choices make a big difference and how to make the same energy efficient building or even a more energy efficient building without driving emissions on the materials side. Because we don't really benefit if everybody makes a passive house level home, but they do it with really high emitting materials. What my research showed was that's no better for the climate and maybe even worse than if they didn't bother going to that length. But you can make a really energy efficient building with really low carbon materials and achieve that win-win so that the work I've been doing has been trying to make that point and to help builders find the pathway that works for them to get to that win-win. Question that comes to my mind, maybe you've examined this, maybe not, but what's the ratio of the lifetime carbon impact compared to the construction? I've been lucky to have done a lot of studies, mostly here in Canada, but we've run about 900 as-built homes through this software program we developed. And if we look at the average carbon footprint of those homes, it's in the range of 40 tons of emissions for a new home. And obviously that varies. That's the construction side? Yeah, from the construction side. So then when we look at the operation side, depends a lot on where the home is and what its level of energy efficiency is and what kind of energy it's using. 
but ResNet just gave me data from last year from their CO2 index. And we found the average for a home getting a ResNet 55 was about basically the operational emissions, the, the embodied emissions were equivalent to four to five years of operational emissions at a 55 hertz rating. As you go down, as the hertz score gets better, when we got down to like 10 and 5 as a hertz score, we are now looking at 30 to 60 years of operations to equal the upfront part. Part of the reason that I'm really passionate about getting builders to pay attention to this is we are going to get better and better on the energy efficiency side, which is just going to make the proportion of the building's emissions over its lifespan that are attached to this upfront piece even bigger. The, if we don't address both, you're going to get diminishing results on the operational side if you still have this massive burst of emissions up front when you first build the building. Is there a parameter called like the total carbon, which accounts for the CO2E plus the embodied? Yep, you can. In our research, we've been calling it the carbon use intensity. So it's basically adding up all the emissions that happen over that building's lifespan. So you take the embodied piece from up front and then the annual emissions. If you're casting far enough forward, you can say, oh, these materials are going to need replacing in year 10, 15, 20. And so you can add a bit for that. But by and large, the big burst is up front with the embodied side. And also there's no way to improve that. You can electrify a house 10 years down the road and its emissions will go down. You can retrofit it. There are ways to improve that. But on the material side, those emissions are in the atmosphere. Like it's a one-time... It's a done deal. And it's a done deal. And we can't retrieve those. There's no way to fix it later. There's a quite a bit, I think, a need to think about that upfront piece. And with electrification, the trend towards renewables on the grid, the sources does keeps all the data fluid. That's right. Yeah. What about the impact of transportation of the materials to the construction site? Yeah, it's a harder thing to measure because on the material side, that the manufacturing of the materials, it's always the same. If that factory has measured its emissions, every batch that comes out, whereas the transportation, it's like, where is the building site? What modes of transportation? How many warehouses did it get moved to before it got there? But when we've done a good deep dig on that, we found that it's usually around 5% of what the material emissions are. And I've never seen it be higher than 10. So it's not insignificant, but it's a much smaller piece than I thought it was going to be when I started researching it. And I think a smaller piece than most people assume. It's something that you want to be aware of. And if you can source materials more locally, that's going to be helpful, but it's not actually nearly as big a driver or as big a concern as just the impact of the material manufacturing itself. When you say materials, does that also include equipment and furnishings? Is that addressed at all or thought about? So to date, we're really looking at the structural and enclosure materials. So we do foundation walls, windows, roof, all that stuff, interior partitions, and all the surface finishes, flooring, wallboard, ceilings. There hasn't been very good data on the mechanical equipment side. That's starting to come to light. And I actually just did a quick analysis where I think it's maybe representing about 25% additional emissions that we so far haven't been counting. But the data sources are still fuzzy enough that we can't do that to the same degree of accuracy as we can with the structural and enclosure materials. 
So these are coming through environmental product declarations? Mostly. That's the preferable data source. Because those comply with that ISO standard that you mentioned? Yeah. Okay. You can have a certain amount of reliability that the data is going to be representative. It sounds like environmental product declarations are optional? Totally. Yeah. What are the trends you've been seeing as you study this in terms of, I wouldn't say compliance because you're not complying with anything, but it's engagement. So there's a big database of EPDs called EC3. And last time I checked, they had now 17,000 unique product EPDs in there. And even five years ago, that was like in the couple of hundreds range. There's been a real explosion of EPDs being created. Part of the IRA bill that was passed in the summer has a fairly substantial pool of money to help companies and incentivize companies to make EPDs. So I think we're going to see even more of them coming to market. Currently, there are enough that, especially for a low-rise residential building, we can capture all of the material types that would typically go into those buildings. We don't have every single product, but if the category is drywall, we probably have EPDs from like five major companies. So we've got a pretty good sense. That's not all the companies that make drywall, but we can see what the average is for that category. We can see a company that's higher or lower, and we've got a pretty good picture. And so that's true across all the product categories we're looking at. The one exception right now being windows. There aren't very many product-specific window EPDs. And so we use some generic assumptions around windows. But with that exception, we can pretty accurately see what all the main material types in a normal house look like. So taking the example of five drywall companies, without naming any names, what's sort of the range or distribution of the embodied carbon? It varies by material type from all of them can be very tightly clustered and there's not much difference between them to there can be like a two, three, four, five times difference. And a lot of that has to do, I think, with both the processes they're using, but also where the factory happens to be located. So you could be making the same material in a state that's where the electricity is almost all coal coming from coal, and you could be in a state where it's all coming from renewables. And so a process that uses the exact same amount of energy to make the material will have a very different emissions profile because there's a lot of emissions associated with the energy for one and not so much with the other. So that tends to be a big driver of that. And then just the efficiency of the processes, the efficiency of the factory, where the raw materials are coming from, that will all have an influence too. And there's a date code on EPDs because things are going to keep changing. Suppliers are going to change. Energy sources are going to change. Absolutely. So an EPD only stays valid for five years. But what we see is companies will update them faster than that if it's to their advantage, right? Like if they change something to get a better result, then they want that result. In public. With the engagement with EPDs, is that coming more from publicly traded companies because of ESG demands being put out by shareholders? I'm not sure. Possibly. To some degree, it is just marketing competition. So what tends to happen is in competitive markets where you've got several manufacturers making a product and the performance of that product and the cost of that product is pretty similar, then having a better EPD result is a differentiator. So definitely the more competitive the product category, the more EPDs we tend to see, whereas things in categories where there's less competition or the competitors are smaller and more regional, those tend not to be as well represented with EPDs right now. As you can tell, I find this fascinating. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> I got another question in terms of waste in construction because of various modes of construction. Like the materials themselves may represent something, but the actual GC or contractor builder may have a different mode of construction, which may influence things that end up having embodied carbon, but end up in a landfill. Yeah. And that's some of the tools that get used for measuring embodied carbon will build in assumptions around wastage. There are some general factors that have been created. Like if you're using drywall, X percent tends to not end up on the project, et cetera. So you can certainly apply those factors. The, the work that I've been doing so far, we haven't been doing that. I think there would be some value to doing that, but it, to some degree, you get into some judgment calls because then you're forcing somebody to accept the number that you're putting forward, but their practice might be completely different. So I have personal experience. We had a new home built in 2020 that was a volumetric modular built in a factory. And I saw salvage or waste cuts being put into a bin and then being reused appropriately on the same or other projects. That's where I'm at modes of construction. Yeah. And I think there is a lot of interest in that modular offsite construction. And my guess is there is probably a smallish advantage in terms of wastage if the processes being used are actually in place and being followed properly. A lot of people also think that there's a big advantage in terms of transportation. And the look that I've done into that is that it's not always better because you're still transporting all of those materials from wherever they're coming from to the factory. And we don't know the distance, depending where the factory is compared to that, it might've been closer to take it right to the site. And then where is the site from the factory to take the finished building? The delivery location, sure. In some cases, we might find that the prefab is better, but in some cases we might find it's not. I don't think it's necessarily an advantage, but I do think there probably is a small benefit to the reduced wastage. If in fact there is reduced wastage, if you're cutting drywall to go around window openings in the factory, you've got the same eight square feet of leftover, whether it was on site or not. If that's getting used somewhere else, that's great. But if it's not, then it's no better. You live and work from Canada for the most part. Is there any contrasting work being done in Canada? Our current government just gave direction to the department that takes care of building codes that by 2030, the code needs to be entirely an emissions-based building code with the idea that in 2025, rather than looking at energy efficiency, the metric will be emissions. And by 2030, that these embodied carbon emissions will be something that's in the code and regulated by the code. So that just getting underway. And I think there are similar discussions happening in the US context. The ICC is definitely looking at this from different angles. And certainly lots of state and in particular city governments are looking at regulating embodied carbon in various ways. But I haven't seen any, this is actually going to happen. It's mostly at this point discussions, but I think it will eventually because we just finished a study at RMI of what's the contribution of embodied carbon from the residential sector to emissions annually. And it's somewhere between 40 and 55 million metric tons a year which is as much emissions as the entire country of like Norway and Sweden <laughs> is just coming from making the materials that go into new homes. And so it's a substantial enough pool of emissions that it is going to fall under the regulatory eye sooner or later. I'm sure the information is generally public. It's going to evolve from all this. So Canada and US will share. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
good pals. <laughs> so driving this back to the topic of ResNet, and we talked, you mentioned the carbon index, and there's been some previous podcasts, and I'll put that in the show notes for those that are interested in listening about the carbon index we've discussed before. But now there's an advisory committee that's working within ResNet to look at this. Can you tell me more about that? So I'm chairing that committee, and it is to give advice to the ResNet board on the notion of whether or not ResNet should write a standard to look at how to measure embodied carbon in new home construction. To me, there's a lot of really great reasons why ResNet is the right place to do that. I'm sitting on the standards committee for ASHRAE, which is doing a very similar thing for all buildings. But when they talk about all buildings, they really tend to be talking about large buildings. I think when I look at what a HERS rater does currently, the information that they're tracking and the way that they're making a model of a building to give it a HERS rating, they have all the information and they're gathering all the right inputs to do the embodied carbon side really easily. They already know what the materials are. They know all the spatial volumes. They know the R values, like everything that I put together to make just an embodied carbon model of a building, a HERS rater is already doing. And it would really just be a matter of them associating that area or volume of material with a carbon factor for the right material. It seems like a great fit. Or the software doing the association. Exactly. The software doing it would make the most sense. And so also the raters are already the ones helping builders with decarbonization plans on the operational side. They're the ones who are telling the builder, hey, you're on track, you're not on track, here's what your emissions look like. And so it seems like that it would be a really great fit to have those same raters, not necessarily that they have to do it, but for them to be able to offer that. And so I think doing a standard with ResNet would mean that we craft a standard in a way that specifically works with the workflow of a rater versus something like this ASHRAE standard, which is going to be great, but it's going to work in the way that works great for architects building really large buildings, but it'll be a really hard thing for a residential builder to put into practice. Whereas I think we could come up with a standard that works really well and integrates really well with the HERS rater workflow. In this advisory committee, do you have a list of members? It's on the ResNet website. It's a big committee. I think there's 30 some members. So it spans the industry pretty well. I recognize, I have like a short list here. I recognize a couple people from the NE HERS, the Northeast Home Energy Rating Alliance up there. They sprung something up on their own or had an interest? Yeah. So that particular group has had an interest in the embodied carbon side for a few years now. And I've been working with them and conversing with them. They're the ones that realized hey, this is obviously it's a big issue and we're already doing the work to make a good embodied carbon model. And so that group was really instrumental in approaching the ResNet board and making the case that this is something worth considering. And I don't think the whole committee would have happened without the instigation of that group. There you go. And the committee, just in general, the makeup of it, you said there are 30 members, and I'll find the link and put it in the show notes. The makeup of the committees, it include institutes, organizations, builders, raters? All of the above. There's some material manufacturers. There are some of the large builders. There are raters, a few not-for-profit organizations. It's a pretty good representation of the sector. Very good. Yeah, I mean, it covers all the points that led up to this point of our discussion or our podcast here today and all the things that are important in here. Excellent. Any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? 
lately I've been in the position of trying to soothe fears that people in the industry have around this notion. I think it, in a lot of ways, it feels both scary because you don't understand it. It also feels like, <laughs> like another thing I have to do, another model I have to make. From my own practice, I know that there are some really great stacked benefits and wins to this in that, first of all, people are worried that the low embodied carbon pathway is going to be the expensive one. And that's absolutely not the case. You can point to some examples where it is, but in a lot of cases, this is cost neutral or even cost beneficial. And we see that the low embodied carbon materials are typically healthier. So if you're thinking about healthy homes, they don't detract from the overall energy efficiency of the building. So you can make a huge difference to your emissions profile, which I know is going to get important, especially for the large builders as they have to start doing ESG reports. Some of them are realizing, oh, this is like over 90% of my the emissions in my ESG report are from the materials we're using. So it's going to become something that we're going to need to address. And I'm just really hoping to bring it to people in a way that Look, it's not scary. There's a ton of low-hanging fruit. We're showing builders how they can knock 25 to 50% off their embodied carbon with very, very little effort. And I think the writing is on the wall that this will get regulated sooner or later. I would love to see the home building sector not be forced into dealing with it at the last minute when it's being regulated, but to take charge of the issue and say, we got this. We're on it. We understand it. We're mapping out pathways. We know how to model it. We're on a good trajectory and we'll set the terms of how that goes rather than having regulators do it on our behalf. I think the comment there about low-hanging fruit, to me, carbon embodiment or carbon generation usually means activity or material and activities and materials cost. So if you've removed some of this carbon factor, you've removed costs. Is that true? Quite often, yeah. Right now, it doesn't always show up that way because in some cases, the lower carbon materials aren't being made at the same volumes that the higher carbon ones are. I think if you look at the processes, you think, oh, this has to be cheaper eventually because, yeah, you are throwing so much less energy into it that it's sooner or later when the scales balance, it will be cheaper. But like I said, right now, quite a few of the low carbon options are either cheaper or cost neutral. And so it doesn't have to be. I know for builders who've been, as the drive for more and more energy efficiency moves along, like that does get more expensive. I've been in those shoes. I know if you're trying to up the energy efficiency, at a certain point, the low hanging fruit is gone and the cost really starts to kick in. And I think on the embodied carbon side, there's a decade's worth of low hanging fruit before we get to that place. And so if you're really looking to make a big reduction in your emissions, this is the side of the equation where it's we're going to do it fastest and easiest, not to take the focus away from the operational side. I think we really need to be doing both. But in terms of bang for the buck right now, the tons that you can reduce in the embodied side for no cost or sometimes even less cost, you just can't achieve that on the operational side. You seem like a scientifically oriented person, I would say. And when you say tons of savings, you're not just throwing a word out there. You're actually meaning tons of savings. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm meaning tons. I'm meaning like a house goes from having a carbon footprint of 40 tons to 10. We've seen that jump happen. And so, yeah, it is literal tons. Literal tons. Thank you. Chris, pleasure meeting with you. Thank you for your time on this. Thank you for all the efforts you put in before and will put in the future on this topic. It was really great having you on Res Talk. 
yeah, I really appreciated the conversation. Okay. Take care. We'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Res Talk podcast. If you're a pro in the building market, surf on over to resnet.us forward slash professional to learn more or join the email list. You can also find ResNet on Facebook or Twitter. Quote for today's episode by Oprah Winfrey. Doing your best in this moment puts you in the best place for the next moment. If you're interested in feeding back to ResNet on what you've heard today, or would like to hear a new topic covered, or just have a general question, please drop an email to info at resnet, R-E-S-N-E-T dot U-S. If you're not subscribed to the podcast, please consider doing so. And as always, thank you for listening to Res Talk. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Res Talk podcast. This podcast is hosted by Bill Spohn, produced by William P. Spohn, LLC, and is a production of ResNet, the Residential Energy Services Network. The best way to listen to this podcast is to subscribe on an iPhone using the podcast app or on an Android device by downloading the Stitcher app and searching for ResTalk. We would appreciate a review on iTunes or on the podcast app. This will help others find the show. We look forward to talking again soon on ResTalk.